welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you are ready for today's episode. I'm really excited to have Julie Weeb on the podcast today. She's a physiotherapist with over 20 years of clinical experience in both sports medicine and women's health. She has a very popular blog. Um, she has a clinical practice in Los Angeles, California, and she shares her approach for post-pregnancy and pelvic health recovery and return to fitness with women worldwide through her online courses. If you have been on social media over the last few years, you have probably come across her. If not, you can check out um, who she is and all of her um, her blogs and her online courses through her website, which is julieweebpt.com, and I'll have the link in the show notes so you can see that. Now, today, Julie and I had a really candid conversation um, that we were having with each other, and I had forgotten to tell her that I had pressed record. So um, if it sounds a little odd or awkward, it's only because we were more talking to each other rather than trying to educate people, but I thought that the information we were talking about was too good to put into the vault, so I'm sharing it with everybody. We were talking about double unders, which is a form of skipping, and we're also talking about running and how these activities, which are impact activities, influence pelvic structure as well as how we can influence this based on the research that we have. And we discuss one paper in particular in this episode, which again, I'll put a link in the show notes. We are going to do a part two on this, and I will tell her when I do press record. Um, But if you're a patron of the podcast, I've also already done a little mini episode on double unders. So if you would like to become a patron, have access to this episode and support the podcast, you can head over to podbean.com, put in the pelvic health podcast in the search tool and on the top right hand corner there's a green button that says become a patron you can donate one dollar or two dollars a month you can cancel any time the cost is in us dollars however it's billed through uh, australia so they may put if you're in america they put um, kind of an extra Uh, cost on it in order to convert it. So I have had some people who live in America that uh, do a one-off donation and then they cancel their membership and um, they're able to have access to some of that content. Thank you to the most recent $2 patrons of the podcast. We've got Bella Hainan and Dale K. Crow. Now, Podbean doesn't tell me your real name. It gives you sometimes um, a username that has nothing to do with your name. So I hope that um, that's the proper name for Dale. I'm sorry if it's not, but thank you again so much, everybody, for supporting the podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope everybody enjoys today. So... Like I said, I was hoping that we could talk about stress urinary incontinence and kind of impact skipping, running. Again, a lot of the patients that I see that will come in will have problems with skipping or double unders, and we don't have a lot of research on any kind of impact activity, really. 
I thought that we could start just by quickly discussing kind of why stress incontinence might happen um, and then our ideas of how impact activities kind of play into that and then maybe some things that we can do to help people, you know, some strategies or, you know, your thoughts on all of it. Sure. That sounds great. I'm in. Pathophysiology stress incontinence, um, at least as far as I know at this point, is still not really well understood. So mm-hmm. we know that there is portion, like we know that pelvic floor muscles play a role, but we also know there's a very big role in connective tissue. And what they're still trying to work out is how much of that connective tissue support has to do with the bladder neck being extra mobile as opposed to uh, the urethra. So the extra mobility in the urethra, but it all comes down to like how much pressure is being able to, is able to be produced down at the bottom, um, as opposed to how much pressure is happening from the top. From what I see, when people have kind of incontinence or pelvic floor issues, when they're doing impact activities like running or jumping or skipping, um, if um, patients have ever been told to do anything in order to help combat that, it seems to be just squeeze your pelvic floor and continue to do that exercise. That's kind of been our long-standing, old, you're leaking, therefore you need to squeeze your pelvic floor muscles. Our understanding of how we attenuate impact is excursion. Like that's what we understand is how we do that. So eliminating excursion from our training programs is I think part of what's contributed. Like that's, that's my thought process. Like we have to train the excursion in order to prepare it. And so that's kind of what I'm doing with my ideas is trying to train that whole range of motion. So when you say excursion, what do you mean? Uh, the, I guess in my, my head, I'm talking about like excursion related to like hip and knee, the hip and knee have to bend to take on that's excursion. Um, we see excursion in the pelvic floor movement. Um, and, uh, and it goes up and down. We know that it lifts or at least it turns on before heel strike. Um, so excursion is talking about the movement of a muscle or muscles all over the place when they hit with impact. Does that make sense? Did I explain that well? Okay. So like glutes, quads, hamstring, everything has to go through an excursion. Pelvic floor is the same way, but we've never thought about it that way for running. If we understand that it goes through an excursion, there's a bell curve that we see the pelvic floor go through during um, uh, a heel strike and running in that whole foot flat thing. And if we see that bell curve, it has to be doing something different. Like it can't, it can't just be holding a sustained contraction. It has to be going through excursion or lifting higher or something like something's happening in yeah. terms of that change. And so gripping it while you continue to run, gripping it while you actually are doing skipping doesn't fit with what is happening mechanically with what we've understood a little bit out of the EMG, but it doesn't fit with what we do with the rest of our body. Our body goes through, it attenuates the impact through that excursion of the joints and the musculature, and we have to apply that to the pelvic floor, but that's not what we've ever done. And so, yeah, so I'm with you. Um, Which is why it makes sense when people try to skip or jump or run and they squeeze their pelvic floor muscles, it often doesn't actually change any of the leaking within that point of time. And if you have ever tried to run squeezing your pelvic floor the whole time, like that is actually really hard. And if you've ever tried skipping, which is... um, a lot of metabolic conditioning, a lot of breathing, um, a lot of rigidity, a lot of muscular use, and to then squeeze your pelvic floor against that the whole time, I don't even know how anyone would actually be able to do that. Well, you can't. 
Like you can't, that's part of the problem. So I would agree with you hundred yes. percent. Yeah. And, it, it, and that's the, and, and I think that's where we have to start to distinguish between the needs of a runner and the needs of someone who's doing skipping. Like those aren't the same activity. Yeah. And so that's the other piece of the puzzle. I can, I can do a lot for a runner with prolapse or leaking. And with that pile driver activity, that's a very different, they can't, part of how I handle it with a runner is rotation. Like I can knock out some of the forces and get dynamic support through rotation and running. But once you take all of that away and they're just doing a pile driver, that's a really different demand. And so we, that's, that's, tr- tr- that's why that one thing keeps being the one thing that's hard to overcome. I think it, it's not saying it's bad. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying any of that crap. I just am saying that's where it gets tricky. We, we have to create a little bit of a different kind of solution for those folks in that, in that activity. Do you so, also think with that the, when you when you read kind of that Leitner study, which I will put into the show notes as well, um, yeah. when they ran faster, they had more pelvic floor muscle action, kind of all all the way, like before heel strike and at heel strike. Would that be because of the forces or the use? The reason that they have the rotation and having to use their abdominals so much. Would that then increase? Do you think that would be why they increased? The interesting thing about Leitner's study was that the continent women and the incontinent women showed similar excursions. Yes, but what they were looking at excursion of, what were they looking? I'm trying to remember. I just read it. Oh, but I mean, they had a probe, you know, and it had like a light, not a light, but like a dot on the end. They were watching it rise and fall with running. Which and would be so, the vaginal wall mobility. Right. Yes. But lots of things influence that, like some of the stuff you just mentioned. Yeah. And and so I, I guess excursion may not be right, but they were talking about that movement. They saw a larger excursion and exchange of motion of the pelvic floor as the speed increased. This was the I, EMG data. So that yeah. would be the pelvic floor muscle. Right. Activity. I think. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about the light that they put. Oh, the okay. Pro- yeah, yeah. They saw that thing go up and down more yes. when the speed increased. Yeah. So, but so they the, also saw more EMG activity when the speed increased. Okay. Yeah. That, that I hadn't reviewed. So yeah. Okay. So well, here's the thing is, and I think this is where it gets tricky, and that's where the information on what's happening with the pelvic floor behavior going up and down was helpful. Is the thing that was the most remarkable to them was that before heel strike the pelvic floor dropped and their hypothesis was is that it would go up to prepare for heel strike. Cause we've seen in other studies that it actually turns on in preparation for heel strike. So to understand that it actually dropped, that that's an eccentric. And so we're seeing an increase in EMG perhaps because of that. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when they went in and then the, when they hit, they got a, a, the, the dot of the pelvic floor went up. So they expected that dot to go down in preparation for heel strike and through heel strike. Sorry, apologies. They thought the pelvic floor would go up in preparation for heel strike and at heel strike. But what they saw was it through an excursion. It prepared for the impacts. You know what I mean? Like it had to go, It had. if you think about that bicep curl, if you don't open your arm when you do a bicep curl, you can't generate any force. So the brain knows that and, it, and that this is completely my interpretation, but it allows that dot to come down 
so that he can generate a, a counterforce for that impact. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's, I mean, you and I are making hand motions here. <laughs> so hopefully people can understand that. But but to me, that it makes sense that you can't generate any power or, or anything out of the pelvic floor unless you allow it to go through, through some excursion. And if we understand that the hip musculature is going through a lengthening phase in that moment and, um, and in preparation for the impact and to generate force out of the glutes for the next running moment. The pelvic floor actually mimicked what was happening in the glutes. It goes through a lengthening and then it explosively pulls back into a hip extension so we get a, a linking there of that action. And that makes sense to me from what I see outside of the pelvic floor. Yeah. 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 And so from a skipping point of view, the same type of things yeah. then should happen. We, I, I don't know. That's a great question because I. this is what is so interesting to me and I wish we had and, and I'm hoping we eventually get here is how do I explore how, what have, I'm trying to think how I can explain my thought process here but in in running I, I would say the answer is yes sorry I would say the answer is yes it has to somehow prepare to, to accelerate it has to be able to come down in order to accelerate for the impact of skipping and help you get up off the ground to get that stupid rope around two times so yes I think it's probably true but I don't know because the demand of running and the different musculature, that rotation, the, uh, there's so many other things on board in running to help activate the pelvic floor and, 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 and impact things like fascia and pressure and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if the pelvic floor does something different in response to such a different activity. The answer is I think so. Because it kind of makes sense, but I don't know for sure because there's so many other things going on in running that can take out that pressure, take out that impact, or not take it out, but attenuate it. And we don't have those things in running, I'm sorry, in skipping. So I don't know for sure what the pelvic floor is doing there. But I'd like to think it's similar. You could take that whole answer out if it didn't make any sense. But it makes sense to me in my brain that it would be similar. But I don't know if when you mention all that pathophysiology around stress urinary incontinence, there's so many elements that are impacting it that we've never understood. We've sort of, like you said, we've sort of always said it's just about squeezing. But it can't be. And, and to understand all of these other pieces, like the urethra and the, you know, the vaginal wall, and there's so many pieces of the puzzle, does running give us an opportunity to impact all of them in a way that skipping does not? Does that, that's what I'm trying to get at. Skipping is such a, there's a re repetition to it. You don't really move that much. The rigidity that you mentioned. So do we lose do we lose that opportunity to impact all these different variables because there's not a lot of movement? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do? Or what, So you have people that come in that have leaking with skipping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you've been able to help them not leak without using a pessary. Yes. So as a clinician and being able to use pessaries here, I mean, I simply can fall back on that very easily because I'm like, you know what? You need some urethral support, some vaginal support. I can increase your closure pressure by just sticking one of these in. Yeah. Yep. It doesn't always work. Actually, a lot of the time, um, especially, you know, the more volume or the higher repetitions they have or just person dependent, it's, it's, you may try to use it and it actually doesn't work. So we, right. we still really need to be not just putting a pessary in people to help them with leaking, but working on other kind of strategies and cues. So what have you found to be really helpful for people? 
Well, let me make something clear too. It, my, my strategies don't always work either. They, they're good up to a certain number, right? Or they're good. And I can get them into higher ranges, but they still may have some trouble. And what I find is most of my patients, and, and for some patients, it's not enough. They need a pester. You know what I mean? Like it's mm. like you said, it, for some people, it's going to be a combination. For some people, they don't do, or they decide it's not worth it to continue to do double unders. And they may just keep it always below that threshold. They can't do above 60. So they do 55 and they're fine. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and so, so I don't want to pretend like I've had a magic bullet over here. I even recently got a, an email from someone who I worked with and she said, I, I, we had, it, it, part of it is it's sets. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's like five sets of whatever it was. 150. Yeah. It, it wasn't that many, but it was a lot. And she was leaking and she was frustrated, but she was like, so I did everything you taught me and I put my pieces back together again and voila, I was dry. And I, but I want it to be so automatic that they don't have to do that anymore. But when you're getting tired, when you're on set number five, you might have to tune in to your form. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, you're playing with so many variables. And I think that's what the, I think that's what conversations like this are great for, because I think we're just starting to consider all those variables. We're just considering bigger picture stuff. But anyway, so yeah, so the strategies aren't always perfect either, trust me, but it's sometimes it's a combination and that's great. And I have internal PTs that I refer to, I think pessaries would be helpful. So I have patients that use pessaries too, for sure. Do you think, well, do you think despite though any of the strategies um, that... Or if somebody has excellent connective tissue, they have great pelvic floor muscles, their skill acquisition is great, they can actually do the technique, they're not, you know, using too much tension because they suck at it. Do you think that there is kind of a limit or a threshold for everybody? Like at some point, even if you don't leak, if you then go on to try to do 850, you know, you're going to have a leak. Yeah, I I would agree with that statement. Like something about the female body that may just not you know, we're going to find a breaking point. <laughs> yeah. But I guess, I guess my thought on that is everybody's breaking point is still going to be different. Yeah. Like there are, and I think that's one of the things that we need to distinguish in our heads too, because that's true for every part of the body. Mm. Like I can't lift beyond my max and that, I mean, listen, I don't train like you do, but, um, but like at some point you hit a max, like, do we eventually get to the top out of our max capacity with a weight? Yeah. Like eventually you're not going to go higher. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know what that line is or why we max out I, on anything. If you really think about it, like why can't Olympic swimmers get faster once they hit, do you know what I mean? Like eventually mm-hmm. they can't get faster. And we have these Olympic records that last forever because we can't get people beyond, you know what I mean? So there's some limit for all of us in the human body and the human performance that we can't get beyond a certain point. What I'm afraid we need to be careful and couch that in is people need to find their own max versus no one should do more than 100 skips. Like, no, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's where that formulaic thinking starts. And, and so, so I don't want to just apply that idea to pelvic health. It's not just that you're going to have a max load period that you're going to be able to get to you're, you know, and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're bad or the other person that can get heavier than you is better, which is where it gets a little tricky mentally and that piece. But yeah, we have maxes like yeah. that's why they're called maxes. 
Um, now I know you have to run in a second but just no no don't worry look a big reason of why I wanted to talk to you today was actually um just chatting earlier (laughs) not even the recording part (laughs) we had our catch-up that was the most important part um but yeah but with like with regards to um you are known for blow before you go (laughs) I'm assuming that you coined that term because I I'd yeah. never heard about it before you said, but I think a lot of people too, when somebody has come up with something that, you know, is works really well for a lot of things, um, then people feel like that's the only way to do it. And then, so then how do you, if some, do you find, like, I find people go, you know what, I can't, I've tried to blow before I go when I'm skipping, it's really hard to engage pelvic floor and breathe out before impact for every single landing. I've heard people say that and I'm like, mm, I think you're taking it out of context. So is that one? Well, of your strategies for skipping see my face which is like horror because i get that too and the bummer is yeah we have to make to understand i actually just did a whole series with my uh newsletter people about breathing and understanding like there's different strategies for different things like you shouldn't encourage uh yeah so blow before you go makes a lot of sense when you have time to set up a lift for example right like when you're starting to get back into lifting or if you can time it with a kettlebell swing or something like that like that makes a lot of sense and i have never taught my runners to blow before every heel strike that's ridiculous like that's it is not what i teach um so it really is intended to be a neuromuscular strategy that taps into the preparatory capacity of the pelvic floor and we just talked about a lightener study they saw a change in what the pelvic floor did before movement now that was a down but i've also tried to train people to do a down <laughs> it didn't go well <laughs> i tell you that like i'd like i mean i do train the down i just don't do it with impact out of the gate like it yeah. did the it, it does not go well. Like I've done it, but you can go ahead and try if you want. But, um, but it is intended to start to rebuild that system. It is intended to set that, get that automatic preparation contraction going to prepare for challenges. That's how the brain does stuff. Okay. So, and then you start to integrate it into an appropriate, like that, that strategy into faster and faster movements. And then eventually the brain, you, you got to hope you prepped it as well as you could. And it can do it quickly, so I actually prep quick things. Like I teach speed to that system. And then eventually the speed is faster than the system can do it. And you don't breathe every every step. You breathe every third, fifth, fourth, mm. like everybody has a different pattern. And the body you hope that the body is doing as the brain has taken that over and it shows up when you need it in the fast. Yeah. So please stop trying to do blow before you go with every skip in double unders. That's not ever what I intended. <laughs> so, Good to hear. <laughs> clarify that with the world. So yeah. What's a really simple kind of preparatory strategy for skipping? Like if somebody, like other than getting to the breath cycles within a skill that they can do, what's something they can kind of start off with that's pretty basic and easy? So here's the thing. With my patients, I they already have learned low before you go. Do you know what I mean? So they know that. So I might actually time in with a single to help them, but for a lot of them it's not fast enough. Like they don't know, they literally have the motor pattern for double. They Doing singles is... It's like, forget it. So it just depends a little bit on the patient. 
Um, but I will practice accelerations with them. Like I will practice inhale, getting that excursion, that down of the pelvic floor, and then feeling what a quick acceleration of the pelvic floor feels like. Like practicing that combination of a pelvic floor and a jump at the same time. Like starting to prepare for that moment in time and then yeah. just speed it up. You know what I mean? So, so that's a simple thing that people can do that matches the task. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so that, that would be one thing, um, I've done, I, I, I didn't know what they were called, but the penguin thing where people are doing the, they hit their thighs, like they practice the arm. Have you seen these? I got this. I might uh, yeah. yeah. So do the, the jumps. Yes. Yeah. I've never heard it called a penguin before. That's what I, uh, this is what I was told. Like, I didn't know what it was called. I got it off of some, like, there's so many CrossFit people, and I apologize, whoever I heard it from, but it's apparently a pretty common thing in CrossFit as a way to train for double unders. Yeah. So I integrate pelvic floor acceleration into that so they get a little bit of arm activity with the feet. You know what I mean? So so I'm building towards it versus saying just breathe and do your pelvic floor a lot and then start jumping it's i use pieces and elements of building toward that skill but i just integrate the pelvic floor in uh, with it does that answer your question that does and i love how you said that um no that that strategy that the blow before you go strategy is not the only strategy that you teach and that you use and that it's appropriate for certain circumstances and not appropriate for others but also that all these strategies that you do teach um sometimes don't work that we can do everything that we want to be able to do for somebody and even again even with a pessary even with surgery sometimes we can't completely keep people dry or get them dry at all so when you have patients like that what do you do uh that is a hard conversation Um, and it's, uh, and I would say that uh, here's what I would say. One of the things that I teach my clients and I teach when I teach my courses is I have an 80, 20 rule and that's find the eight. There's usually like 80% of what they're doing that they can do without leaks or, you know what I mean? Like it's the 20 that we need to focus on. So let's let them continue in that 80 and start to hone in on what is the pieces of the puzzle that they can't do and start to figure out if there's some kind of connection between those things to help us as clinicians know how to help them. And then we start narrowing that down, right? To like 10% and 5% and like, and I say to my patients, okay, listen, when I met you, you couldn't do blank, blank, you know, like X, Y, Z. And if we got you better on all of that, but you're still having trouble with one or two things, like that's still a really good outcome. Do you know what I mean? Like that's how I talk to my patients about it is to, is to keep them focused on what they still can do and to understand that, you know, we may not have been able to accomplish all of our goals. Like you may not be able to do double unders over 75. Like you have to do 70 or less and you're dry. Like those are the kinds of conversations. And then, and usually they can kind of absorb that. Do you know what I mean? I feel like that. So, so those have been more my experiences. And and it may be that you're seeing patients that have much more in depth and more severe pelvic floor problems, like that they can't get back to anything without leaking. But most of the patients that I've experienced get back to some stuff and they can do some stuff at different different levels, maybe not quite the intensity 
be, but they're back to doing being physical and doing what they want to do. But it's it's just we have to appreciate that if you're in sports medicine, you have patients that tear their ACL and their career's over. Like we understand that in other parts of sports medicine. So we also and we had to have those conversations with lots of athletes. Like I'm, yeah, you know, you may not get back on the field and play at the collegiate level anymore because your knee we can only get it. So you know what I mean. But yeah. then there's people that are back and they're fine and they go to you know on and on and on. And so it's, it's a tough conversation to have with anyone. Um, but it, we have to, we have to start thinking about it and like that those, those issues and those circumstances are not unique to pelvic health. We yeah. see that in other injuries that are like, if you're a boxer and you've had 18 concussions at some point, somebody needs to say to you, put their hand on your shoulder and say, I'm really sorry, but I think you need to not be back in the ring. And, but you can do other things. But so, so, and I'm not trying to belittle, and I understand how devastating some of the pelvic health stuff is, but, but I, I really feel like we can always find something. And if it's 80% of what you can do, like that's a really good outcome for a really severe injury for anybody in any yeah. kind of injury. So I, does that make, does that answer? That's, it's perfect because I love how you're keeping the positive in it, but I think people need to acknowledge that, um, that we can't sometimes we cannot yeah. fix everybody and I think in the world of stress incontinence especially with all of this online stuff it seems to be promoted that pessaries will fix everything that someone's got a program that will fix everything and sometimes people come into it expecting a hundred percent complete resolution and when they don't get it they just keep trying to find other and other and other people because sometimes I think again everyone seems to not everyone but there is like a a broad generalization, I guess, that everybody can be fixed and get completely dry with pelvic floor physiotherapy or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really, it's very tricky. And I, you know, we, social media is a, it's a double-edged sword. It's awesome. I've learned so much from colleagues through it. I'm so grateful for it. It's changed a lot since you and I started on social media. Um, and I, I think there's more of the other edge, which is competition for mm, sell. and sell, 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 sell. And unfortunately, that means your marketing has to be. Yeah. I'm shrugging. No one can see what I'm making, the face I'm making. <laughs> I was going to say bullshit, but I'll yeah. just put oh, it a little explicit. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get a warning. We've got a mature audiences only warning. Um so, but, and I, but at the same time, I think that the intentions behind all those programs yeah. are good. Mine are too. Like I, so it's like this really a balancing act for all of us because we also need to, to market, to get people to even begin to address it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like I understand that we have to get people in the door and we can offer them something like, like, I, you know what I mean? And I, and, and the way that marketing works is you don't sell, I can maybe kind of sort of get you better. Like that doesn't get people in the door, but we have to be so careful. And I don't think everyone's being careful. I agree with you in terms of saying, you know, we have these tools, we can help, but, but yeah, I can't guarantee, I can't guarantee it. And I've actually used the phrase. I'm Julie, not Jesus. Like I, I wish I had, I could do, I could make everybody all the way better, but I have women who need diastasis surgery after I'm done with them. Like mm. I can't make your fascia reappear if it's, if you aren't genetically engineered to do that. Do you know what I mean? And, and so, cause women ask me all the time, they want to guarantee before they come. And I'm like, I really can't offer you that. Um, I can't. And I think, I think, but I also know I can do something. I can help. 
I can get you somewhere, but I, but you may still need, I don't know if you'll need surgery. I have to look at your body. I have to see how it moves. I have to see how you act. And, you know, but I, I think we can get people back to lots of stuff. Like I think we, we've also let negative messaging happen, which is you're doomed. If yeah. you have a public health problem, you can't exercise at all. Yeah. And we're it, trying but, to erase that a bit. Exactly. Yeah. So we have to find that middle ground. And that's where I kind of like the 80-20 idea. Like, I, like I may that. not get you back to 100% of what you were doing. But dude, if I could get you back to 80, come on, that's pretty cool. But you know, and but then when you have a performance athlete whose endorsements rely on it, you got to let them go. Like there's, yeah. a, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, there's a, we need to be careful applying things universally. And that's all, like, I've talked about that lots. Like, everybody should Nobody should. We have to find the middle. We can't say either of those extremes. But yeah, it's hard. It's really hard conversations we have to have with people. Like, I, it's hard. I wish I could make everybody all the way better, but it doesn't. It's not the reality. So, well, good to know that you are also not Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> I, I really am not. <laughs> oh well, I know that you need to run, so I'm going to let you run, and I will send yeah. you an email. But thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate it, and we'll okay. talk soon. Okay. Okay. See ya. Bye.